In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Far away beyond the pine woods, there is a little garden. There the grass grows long and deep. There are the great white stars of the hemlock flower. There the nightingale sings all night long. All night long he sings. And the cold crystal moon looks down. And the yew tree spreads out its giant arms over the sleepers. It is the garden of death. Oscar Wilde, the Canterville ghost. For Wilde, the garden of death is the cemetery, the tomb. Here he calls to mind images of death, yet fills them with hope, with signs of life. The hemlock flower, though it is poisonous. The nightingale bird that sings his song, though at night, it is at night when it is dark. And the moon, though giving light, still hovers amidst the darkness. The yew tree, an evergreen, traditionally planted in English churchyards. And finally, those who lie in the brown earth with the long grass waving above them, and he calls them sleepers. Death is the final enemy of man to be overcome. As St. Paul doth teach us, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The enemies to be destroyed include Satan, who in the garden by his deceit and lies, brought ruin to Adam and Eve and the race of man. The next enemy from that encounter to be destroyed is sin, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death will be last of all because it is the wages of sin. Death was the last of the enemies to come in the Garden of Eden, and it will be the last to be destroyed. And man has sought ever since, to overcome death on his own terms. Pyramids, mummification, burial mounds. Archaeological finding in the early 20th century at Newgrange in Ireland revealed a burial mound located there in a loop of the River Boyne in County Meath, older than Stonehenge, predating the pyramids. It was already ancient when Abraham was born. In 1963, a carefully constructed aperture was discovered above the lintel of its east-facing entrance, so precisely positioned that on mid-winter's day, the slanting rays of the rising sun shine directly through, tracing a ribbon of light along the narrow floor of the passage grave until they hit the back inner wall of the burial chamber itself. This earliest example of sophisticated solar alignment implies a highly developed religious, albeit pagan, response to nature and to death. For this Celtic pre-Christian group, it was an attempt to allow light, even on the darkest day of the year, to break into the dark of death. When St. Patrick and his companions arrived in Ireland, they didn't outright obliterate the pagan sign of the rising sun. He brought it to Christ by drawing the cross in front of it. Now, 
the high Celtic crosses of Ireland eloquently remind the passerby in a simple and artistic manner that Christ is the light of the world and that in him there is no darkness at all. He has conquered sin and death. By his cross and resurrection, he hath redeemed the world. Before the glorious resurrection of Christ, he had to endure his bitter passion on the cross until bowing his head, he died. The cross, as Fulton Sheen points out, is the condition of the empty tomb, the crown of thorns, the preface for the crown of glory. The body of the Savior hanging upon the cross then at that point belonged especially to his mother. Again, as Fulton Sheen recalls, no one in all the world except the Blessed Virgin Mary could pronounce his words at the Last Supper as she could, though she was not a priest, since no one but the Blessed Mother had given him body and blood, the Holy Spirit overshadowing, only she could say, this is my body, this is my blood. She alone gave him that by which he redeemed. She alone made him possible. She alone made him the new Adam. To a mother, no child ever grows up. It must have seemed for the moment that Bethlehem had come back again, for he was once more in her embrace. As you reflected in yesterday's sorrow of our Blessed Lady, he was no longer fresh and fair as when he came from the Father. He was red as he came from the hands of men. This is her seventh sorrow, to place in the cerement of the earth bone of her bones and flesh of her flesh. St. Alphonsus writes, Mary, clinging to her son, was dissolved in grief. But those holy disciples, fearing lest this poor mother would expire there through agony, went to take the body of her son from her arms, to bury it, to bear it away for burial. Therefore, with reverential force, they took him from her arms, and having embalmed him, wrapped him in a linen cloth already prepared, upon which our Lord wished to leave the world his image impressed, as it may be seen at the present day in Turin. And now they bear him to the sepulcher. The sorrowful funeral train sets forth. The disciples place him on their shoulders. Hosts of angels from heaven accompany him. Mary Magdalene and those holy women follow him. And the afflicted mother follows in their company her son to the grave. When they had reached the appointed place, how gladly would Mary have buried herself there alive with her son. Oh, how willingly, said the virgin to St. Bridget, would I have remained there alive with my son if it had been his will. But since this was not the divine will, the authors relate that she herself accompanied the sacred body of Jesus into the sepulcher, where, as Baronius narrates, they deposited the nails and the crown of thorns. In raising the stone to close the sepulcher, the disciples of the Savior had to turn to the Virgin and say to her, Now, O Lady, we must close the sepulcher. Have patience. 
look upon thy son and take leave of him for the last time. Then, O my beloved son, must the afflicted mother have said, Shall I see thee no more? Receive then this last time that I shall look upon thee. Receive the last farewell from me, thy dear mother, and receive my heart, which I leave buried with thee. Indeed, children are the heart of their parents. The Virgin, says St. Fulgentius, earnestly desired that her soul should be buried with the body of Christ. And Mary herself made this revelation to St. Bridget. I can truly say that at the burial of my son, one sepulcher contained, as it were, two hearts. Finally, they take the stone and close up in the holy sepulcher the body of Jesus, that great treasure, greater than any in heaven and on earth. And here let us remark that Mary left her heart buried with Jesus because Jesus was her treasure. He was all her treasure. And as our Lord said, where thy treasure is, there will thy heart be also. Before quitting the sepulcher, according to St. Bonaventure, she blessed that sacred stone, saying, O happy stone, that doth now enclose that body, which was contained nine months in my womb, I bless thee. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who, still alive, had not yet need of it. It was a stranger's tomb. Human birth and human death were strangers to his divinity. Thus he was born in a stranger's cave and buried in a stranger's grave in the garden beneath Calvary's mountain, <clears throat> excuse me, where the cross tree spread its giant arms over the sleeper. The word garden hints at Eden and the fall of man, but also of hope, as in the flowers that bloom in the garden at springtime. In that garden was the tomb in which no man had ever been buried, born of a virgin womb. He was buried in a virgin tomb. And as Crashaw said, and a Joseph did betroth them both. After three days, Abraham received back his son Isaac, who was offered in sacrifice. For three days, Egypt was in a darkness that was not of nature. On the third day, God came down on Mount Sinai. The Lord Jesus had been lost to her for three days before, in the temple, in Jerusalem, when he was yet a child. And he that was lost was found. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The sleeper, O mother, shall awaken. What of us? Where shall we keep our hearts buried? Alphonsus, again, reflects with creatures in the mire. Why not with the immaculate heart of our blessed lady? Why not with Jesus Christ and his most sacred heart, who, although he has ascended to heaven, has wished to remain not dead but alive in the most holy sacrament of the altar, precisely in order that he may have with him and possess our hearts. He who rolled away the stone that sealed the entrance of the tomb can remove the stones of our hearts. 
Well did Isaiah prophesy, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. To them that dwelt in the region of the shadow of death, light is risen. And so we end where we began, with the rays of a rising sun illuminating an ancient burial chamber, not the pallid light of a pre-Celtic winter caught by some cleverly, humanly aligned burial mound still full of bones, but the vigorous warmth of a spring dawn rising on the broken seal of an empty tomb in Judah, an eternal dawn that shines upon a sepulcher whose stone has been rolled back forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.